Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, March the 9th. We got a busy show today. We got a lot to pack in and jam in, including the potential lifting of the province's mask mandate. I know it's not without some controversy. I know it's not without some worry. And there's relief for some, joy for others, mixed emotions, trepidation, all of it. Depends who you are and what household you're in. Obviously, all that's true. Dr. Isaac Bogosh on that front, pharmacologist Sabina Vora-Miller on that front, and we'll talk about a lot to do with uh, the reaction to that. Our Chatterbox segment with Kelly Cotrera, Mike Drolet, will address that amongst other things as well. It's all coming up. You're going to enjoy today's show. Toronto Today begins now. An announcement later this morning about the ceasing of the mask mandate uh, for indoor areas. There will still be some businesses, not unlike the Vax Passport, keeping it in place. I've got thoughts on that uh, as the morning continues, and we'll keep you updated most of the morning long. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is going to uh, make a, this is like a bonus track on an album. I feel like we just talked to him, but he'll be on with us uh, around 8.05 this morning, and we'll get your thoughts with phone calls and text messages and whatnot as the morning continues. It's probably the big story of uh, the morning. Russia-Ukraine is still very big. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Um, let me start here with documenting where we're at. Uh, there was a lot of talk yesterday uh, without going too deep into the weeds about how we've been able to arm Ukraine to fight back against Russia's military. The big number from yesterday that jumped out at me was that their military and it doesn't seem to be being refuted and it would be where it not to be close to accurate is uh, Russia's military suffering somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 casualties, deaths. And that's a quote-unquote low-confidence assessment from the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency director, a man named Scott Barrier, uh, who says that that's what he's getting from intelligence and open sources. Um, This has not gone according to plan. Russia is attempting to push narratives that are false. You heard me yesterday be critical of the fact Ukraine is putting prisoners of war out there for press conferences. Yeah, that's true also. Parading Russian prisoners in front of, you know, the Ukraine media and uh, and thinking that you're getting valid and honest answers from them at this particular point uh, and, and proving, making them, in essence, go up and say, we didn't know what we were doing. We have no information. And this looks like a war that our own country uh, has made a mistake in and can't win. That's the definition of propaganda. It's also it's also a violation of the Geneva Convention. You can't do that. So I'm not sure which officials in Ukraine are organizing these groups of POWs to be presented in these news conferences. Um, But it's wrong. That said, we can debate the right and wrong of it. I suppose we could. But it's embarrassing to Vladimir Putin. It's totally humiliating to Vladimir Putin. And you might say, well, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze at that particular point. That's okay. Uh, Jim Shuto with the very latest on what's on the ground. I've got uh, updated audio from Clarissa Ward, who was on the the great CNN reporter who was on Good Morning Britain this morning. You'll hear air raid sirens in the background. So clearly the concept of a ceasefire hasn't quite hit home for all in Ukraine. And and that word has not got to a lot of the uh, Russian military groups uh, who said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll let civilians go. We'll create these quote-unquote humanitarian corridors, which we told you yesterday on the show have featured landmines. Um, those weren't laid 25, 30 years ago. Those have been recently laid. Um, so there's there's a lot of tactics that the Russians are using that they have previously used um, in Georgia, that they've used in Syria when they've uh, been in, in the heart of the battle. A lot of these military men and uh, in Russia are very seasoned and they've done this before. Um, so there's there's a lot of how would I put it? Um, there's a lot of experience with uh, utilizing tactics that we would go. Well, I don't know. Is that a little bit below board is not is not a problem for the Russians. They've been there, done that in the last decade. Here's CNN's Jim Shuto. Its forces have increasingly targeted the civilian population with aerial bombardment and shelling following a time-worn Russian strategy it pursued ruthlessly in Chechnya in the 1990s and more recently in Syria. There is a sobering reality to this war. The Ukrainian military has certainly outperformed and continues to. However, the Russian military continues to grind on, gaining territory, though more slowly than hoped, and as it does acting with more and more impunity 
about civilian lives. And Jake, when I speak to U.S. officials, ask them how they believe this contact conflict will continue to develop. They say a more ruthless Russia, more civilian casualties. They don't see Putin pulling back. Yeah, he's in too deep at this particular point. We talked about this. This is not about a number of weeks. This is not a small number of months. This is either a big number of months or a small number of years. You can look at both the Balkan Wars. Uh, You can look at the struggles uh, that that the former Yugoslavia had constantly uh, in the mid-90s to the late 90s and think it takes about 16, 18 months for the dust to clear at tremendous, tremendous loss of life. Ukraine, by the way, I gave you the number earlier that there's 2,000 to 4,000 Russians that have been killed. Ukraine says it's 9,000. So, um, again, is the truth potentially somewhere in the middle? Is there messaging on both sides of this particular front that are that's uh, significant? Absolutely. Just this morning and just two hours ago, Clarissa Ward stepped up uh, from CNN and went on Good Morning Britain, which obviously five hours earlier, we like to use some of their audio because it's people awake and things happening earlier. And you could hear the air raid sirens behind her in the report. So clearly uh, in Kiev, nothing is peaceful right now. It's not a ceasefire. It doesn't matter what negotiations are going on at the table. Uh, A fourth set of negotiations are set to start within the next uh, eight hours, but it's not making a difference in terms of the bombing. Well, I have to tell you, it's supposed to be a ceasefire this morning. It was supposed to start about an hour ago. We have heard pretty much nonstop artillery in the distance for the last half hour, 45 minutes or so. It's possible that that is outgoing or we can't determine. Oh, well, there you have it. The air raid sirens are starting up again. This is a sound that by now all of us have become all too accustomed to. It is sort of the soundtrack of daily life here in Kyiv. For the moment, the violence is primarily, and the worst fighting is in the suburbs of Irpin, Bucha, Barodyanka, uh, and other suburbs. But the fear for people living here in the city center and the danger for President Zelensky is that as Russian troops push to encircle the city, as they potentially increase their bombardment, that things could get much uglier and much more dangerous even here in the city center. That's Clarissa Ward on Good Morning Britain. Now, I'm not going to I'm not going to make the parallel between the honking horns in Ottawa, which clearly annoying, frustrating, psychologically bothersome and uh, and that people lived in Ottawa in a state of, well, you know, do I just stay here? Am I OK to go out on the street? Am I going to feel intimidated? That's not what this is. And I'm not trying to even suggest that anybody in Ottawa uh, needs to get a grip on reality. If you feel something, if you felt intimidated, if it was driving you crazy, if you couldn't sleep, if you couldn't put your kids to bed. Yes, yes, yes. Check all those boxes. All oh, that's true. I think we'd agree that that's a huge step up from hearing air raid sirens knowing Russia's invading you. We know that already. Let me shift to this, and it has to do with gas prices. If you missed it, because let's bring this back to us to some extent. Well, I update you there. Some of this is what's what about what does this mean for me? I understand that gas prices didn't rise overnight. They stayed uh, flat. It's hard. I stopped on the way in. And uh, what, for 40 liters paid, uh, I I think, close to 78 bucks. So, um, yeah, small gas tank, huge price at the pump. Usually that price would be at a dollar fifty. Obviously, a 40 liter tank is going to cost you sixty dollars is about seventy eight, seventy nine dollars all told this morning. Um, But this is a question and a poll that was taken by The Wall Street Journal yesterday as Joe Biden The U.S. president was announcing the United States, as we told you Monday would happen on Tuesday, will ban Russian oil. That was the big step up that needed to happen. Last Friday, uh, the United States had purchased $22 million worth of Russian oil, and that's a daily purchase. That's a daily uh, check to write, if you will, uh, to Russia. So if you're it's great. Hey, uh, well, we're we're shutting down uh, McDonald's. You can't have a. you can't have your Happy Meals. You can't have your 10-pack of McNuggets. Okay, fantastic. But you're buying a $22 million of Russian oil a day and basically $140 million a week. So you're funding Vladimir Putin's war efforts here by doing just that. The poll is really significant to me in that 79% of Americans. Now, now a lot of polls will not relate and, uh, and translate 
to people wanting to put things in practice. Should we uh, should we end racism? Ninety seven percent of people say yes. Two people aren't sure. One percent, because that's just the one percent rule, are terrible, awful human beings. OK, um, what th- these are the measures we're ready to take to end uh, end all racism. Who's willing to who, who will actually do this? Well, you know that it's going to be less than ninety seven percent. People will say things in surveys that they may not be able to or willing to uh, subjugate themselves to practically. But these are the numbers. The survey says 79 percent of Americans support that ban, even if it means paying higher energy prices. Look, if it meant turning Russia around, breaking Vladimir Putin, ending Vladimir Putin, because um, he's a threat to all of us. Okay, make no mistake about it. I'm not going to complain about my extra $18, though I w- I'm well aware that a lot of people are really, really struggling to put gas in their car and maintain their businesses. I've seen a lot of um, sass, if you will. Well, now maybe you should have bought an electric car. Tell a truck driver that who works for another company. Tell an Uber driver that who's driving uh, right now. Tell a farmer putting, um, you know, uh, handling crops to drive an electric tractor. Okay, those things don't work. Those sounds like those sound like very laptop class elite esque suggestions for people who have to drive from A to B and need fossil fuels. I don't mind if you lay that at me and say, "Hey Brady, you should have bought an electric car uh, a few months ago," or that should certainly be your next car. I'm with you, and I'm looking for more incentives to do just that. And this may very well be the push right off the diving board that we all need to do these things in the future. But 79 percent of Americans supporting that ban says a lot to me if they're willing to and it me if it means they're paying higher energy prices they're somehow okay with it just 13 percent oppose that ban here's the question again would you favor or oppose the u.s imposing new sanctions on russia by banning the sale of russian oil to the u.s even if you knew it would cost u.s energy prices prices to increase 77 percent of republicans say put the ban on russian oil 88 percent of democrats said do it do it also Russia's going to get taken down by this. They're going to be brought to their knees by this financially. And there does seem to be some evidence. Um, if, if it stops the war, if it limits the war, if it helps Ukraine win the war, I think mo- most of us would uh, would pay that price. Most of us would take that injection of pain at the gas pumps. Okay, We have to hold Russia accountable here for what they're doing. This seems to be the one way to do it. And look, again, we can debate. Our use of fossil fuels, the carbon tax, buying electric cars, you know, being more conservative, small c, if you will, with fossil fuels and energy. I'm all for those debates. Those are important debates to have. And I don't think there's anybody on either side of the political fence that's not willing to at least talk about these things going forward. I think we all are. How does that poll land with you? I'm really curious. 289-975-1640. I'll ask you the same question. And I want to read some of your responses. Would you favor... Canada, which did already banning the sale of Russian oil to us, even even if you knew it's going to cause your price at the gas pump to increase. This is kind of a vote against your wallet in the short term, but it's a vote against Vladimir Putin for the long term. And I think we'd all I know you might say this is not my problem. It's not my fight. It's between Russia and Ukraine. And to some extent, you're right. To some extent, you're right. But all of this is affecting your bottom line. Even if you don't drive for a living, you are going to feel what's happened here in the last three weeks. You're going to feel it over the next three to six months with the goods you buy, the the things you want, the places you go. We know that this is true. We still see this destruction uh, and the bombing, and we can't get over some of the images we've seen in Ukraine. A nation of 44 million people, 4 million plus is the expected amount of refugees, and it was documented yesterday that uh, it passed the 2 million mark. Half of them have gotten to Poland and obviously half of them uh, looking for visas in Poland and, and looking for it in other countries as well. If anything, the UK's come under some criticism for not opening up the visa process more. And I think that heat's going to land um, right at the feet of the uh, UK prime minister, who has been statesmanlike in this process. We'll talk about that uh, with our next guest uh, and the uh, view on the ground in a second or two. Marcus Kolga from DisinfoWatch.com was on with us a couple days ago. There are few better authorities in Canada on Russia. And I asked him about that strategy uh, in terms of what they're looking for. If I own property in, um, in in Ukraine and I live in Ukraine, are are you trying to make me run? Are you trying to capture me? Are you trying to 
uh, destroy my property. What's the end game here? And as Marcus Kolga notes with Vladimir Putin, it's hard to say. Quite frankly, anyone's guess. I mean, we're, we're dealing with clearly someone who is mentally unstable and I would say psychopathic. Um, the wanton just killing of, of civilians. Again, you know, these were people who were told that they could flee to safety. There's video of tanks of soldiers, of missiles targeting these columns, these people who are streaming out of these these cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Vladimir Putin wants it all. He wants to destroy Ukraine. He wants to destroy it so that it is never able to stand up to him again, just like he does. He's been doing with all of his critics over the past 20 years at different varying degrees. And that suspicion has to be there. um, No doubt about it. When we're talking about somebody who, who, you know, we can disagree on something. You and me can politically. We can discuss, um, you know, and, and debate anything going on in our country. We can talk about the truckers. We could talk about, you know, uh, vaccine mandates. We could talk about masks. And um, and I'm not going to poison you if I disagree with you. It's a big distinction we can make there. I'm honored to welcome on the uh, president and CEO of World Vision Canada, who is on the ground at the border of Romania and Ukraine as we speak this morning. He is Michael Messenger. Michael, I can't thank you enough for uh, making the connection with us back here in Toronto, uh, for being on the ground there. And uh, welcome on to Toronto today. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Craig. It's uh, you know it's, it's a challenging situation here at the border, uh, but we're glad to be able to be able to be here to tell the stories of the refugees and, and how Canadians can help. Well, you're there live, um, and and uh, we're talking about uh, early afternoon uh, after twelve noon there um, with the time difference. Uh, what is what is traffic like streaming to the border? We've seen the video day after day after day of not just cars, Michael, but people walking with roller bags, stuffing everything they can in a couple suitcase, carrying babies and young kids just to get out of Ukraine. What is what are things you've seen so far in your time there? Well, that's exactly what we've seen. I was just, I just came from the border crossing just a few minutes ago. And, um, you know, we, there's still a lineup of cars. If you're, if you're traveling by car, it's still like a 20 or 25 hour wait to get across the border. But what we're seeing is that we're seeing foot traffic now. So as you said, uh, mothers and children, mostly uh, women and, and kids actually, uh, coming with strollers. I saw uh, one person with a dolly carrying, you know, cardboard boxes, obviously what they could, they could, they could just carry in, in haste. And so, you know, they're, they're coming. We've had a chance. Uh, I, I haven't talked to people there, although our staff are on the ground welcoming refugees, supporting them. I did have a chance yesterday in one of the transition camps near one of the other border crossings where World Vision is working uh, to help meet the immediate needs of, of, of families, working alongside the, the government authorities and other organizations. Uh, in our case, particularly looking at the needs of children. So, we one of the dynamics that is unique to the other refugee settings that I've been part of or refugee responses is this fact that there are so few men. And you know, right. men have been left behind. Uh, so it's it's mothers and, and children. So not only have they are they leaving they've come from conflict, they have you know lacking basic services. These kids have seen things that you know adults shouldn't have to see. Um, and then to add on top of that to see that the family has been separated at the border and they're coming into the unknown. It's a really, it's, a, it's, it's tough to hear these stories. I think just such an incredible stress of the separation of families, isn't it, Michael? And we saw that documented and, and that, that clear delineation early on that men 18 to 60, 18 to 60 were not allowed uh, by U- Ukrainian law to leave the country. So we could be talking, you know, um, uh, <laughs> the body wears down at a certain point in time. But we're we're talking, you know, not exactly fresh, healthy young men being forced to stay behind. We're talking people 55 to 60 being told you have to stay. We may need you. We may need you to pick up arms and and defend our country. Well, I met with a family yesterday in in the camp that that we were doing some work at. Uh, Her her name was Olga. She was traveling there with her three kids. They were 12, 9 and 3, but also with her mother. Uh, and was they were just they had actually crossed from Romania into Moldova and then into Romania. It's kind of this crossing, especially for people in the threatened city of Odessa, mm-hmm. which is one of the areas that people are concerned about. They had passed through, and you know, Olga was telling me in tears that she and her her husband had made plans to leave. They packed for a while, and they thought, well, maybe it's not going to get as bad as we thought. So they waited, and they waited just long, you know, before when it actually came to the time that they had to leave. 
it was at that point where he had to stay behind because the edicts had come in place. So that, that, you know, she was not only feeling the stress of having to take her kids and her mother wondering where they would go next, and they didn't have a next destination really except the vague idea about maybe going to Germany where they could get some support, but also knowing that had they even left a week before, Mm-hmm. Uh, they they may have been able to you know, at least be together as a family. So it's it's this layer of you know layer of grief grief and, and separation on top of what's already a desperate situation for so many. Michael Messenger, kind enough to join us uh, from the Romania Ukraine border, President and CEO of World Vision Canada, joining us on Toronto today. This is looking at it last night, knowing that we'd be speaking today. This is uh, a border between two nations that's both can be crossed by land and by sea. Is there a operational uh, ferry that that, uh, usually is, but is there one operating right now that can put people on a boat and help them cross to Romania? Well, I know that there has been from Odessa that that sea along the Black Sea. I don't know the current situation of that. Mm -hmm. Frankly, Greg, my focus has been up here in Surrette where people are crossing by land. Uh, Again, you know, the estimation is, I mean, the the UN says about 100,000 people have crossed. The, The Romanian officials seem to think that may be undercounted. So, our staff here is saying the numbers could be even up to up to twice mm-hmm. that have come into this, you know, in, into Romania. The Romanians have been incredibly welcoming and just coming alongside. But you know, that's something that kind of influx of people day after day. It, it's going to wear on the infrastructure and in the, in the in the community. They're going to need ongoing support. So we're focused on meeting immediate needs right now of these refugees. But of course, the concern is longer term. What happens next? What happens if there is a uh, protracted conflict if, if, if peace doesn't come back. So far, the people that we've spoken to, they want to go home. They're ready to go home as soon as they can. But at a certain point when basic services are gone, when conflict continues, violence continues, insecurity... Uh, they're just not going to want to take their kids back into that setting until they know it, it can be safe. Well, Michael, you document that there's a country of 44 million people in Ukraine uh, that, that's a lot bigger land wise. Uh, Romania is under 20 million people. Th- this is like a lot of people trying to flood from major cities in Ontario into smaller cities in the Maritimes. At, like like you said, at, at a certain point, there's a need on a humanitarian basis. But in the long term infrastructure that it Romania is not meant, not meant and not built to support the influx that they're getting. Probably we could say Poland isn't either. That pushes them to other countries. And I'm I'm sure our listeners are asking, what is our expectation for Canada? We're clearly allowing uh, visas and and giving a long grace period of two years uh, to get people uh, assimilated into Canada. There's a heavy Ukrainian population here in a lot of our major cities, including out on the prairies in in Edmonton and, and in a western province like Winnipeg. That has to be the expectation is that a lot of people with Canadian ties from Ukraine will end up in Canada. Well, I know, I certainly know from the, from the generous donors that, and I'm aware of this, that, you know, I think Canada does have, have the largest Ukrainian diaspora outside of Russia, actually, in the world. So it wouldn't surprise me if those kind of connections happen. I don't know, the, you know, again, that's, that's looking out, you know, I've, I've learned over the years, and certainly in this context, to realize it's an incredibly volatile and, you know, emerging situation. One thing I can say is that, uh, comparing even to other places, people are constantly on the move. So, if I think about Syrian refugees flooding into countries like Jordan or Syria or, or um, uh, uh, Jordan or Lebanon, they you know they they often will cross the border and then they feel safe and they stay. This particular case, almost everyone is on the move somewhere else. And so I was just actually at Surat, there is a refugee camp, but no one is staying longer than 24 hours. And then they've given options about perhaps you know moving on to what's next and talking to different people. Some may have family in some other country that they can go to. Other places are kind of they're just carrying on moving. So, and it could be that some of them end up in Canada or elsewhere. Um, I think they'll do whatever they can. And I'm a parent myself. I think I'd do anything for my yeah. kids that I could, whatever I can get back, get them back to some kind of stability, safety, where they can have their health care and basic needs met. But also there are psychosocial needs and educational needs, which is a, a real concern for these kids as well. How can our listeners help uh, here with what World Vision is doing? It's a phenomenal organization. It has been for decades. But at this time of need, uh, this, this I think we're well aware from the images and, and those anecdotes that you share from the border. This is no ordinary crisis. And I think we'll look back in 18, 24 months because uh, I think this war is going to continue for potentially that period of time. And, and we're never going to say, well, we did too much. We're only going to regret saying we did we not we didn't do enough. Yeah, this is this is a rapidly evolving and growing humanitarian disaster, and I can say that for many years of experience of, of tracking with these kinds of things with World Vision. Uh, what I can say is that that 
the needs, unfortunately, always outstrip the resources, especially in those early days. So the very best thing that Canadians can do if they feel like they want to respond in some way, it's to give to a reputable organization that's doing good work on the ground. World Vision certainly won, um, you know, worldvision.ca. We're also joining part, joining alongside our humanitarian coalition partners, other agencies. Save the Children has a tent right at the, next to us at, at the border. We're working together. So they can do that to the humanitarian coalition as well, together.ca. That's the easiest and best way is to make a donation to an organization like World Vision. They can get those funds and turn them into impact, helping kids today. Michael Messenger, President and CEO of World Vision Canada. We'll share the links where our listeners can potentially uh, donate and at least keep uh, in touch and abreast of this situation. But thank you for the work you're doing on the ground there uh, in the Ukraine border region uh, for not just it, it, and not just for future potential Canadians, but for everybody. Like it's called World Vision uh, Canada for a reason. We've got to have this this macro perspective on uh, on yeah. ongoing tragedies like this. I can't thank you enough for sharing time with our listeners today. Greg, thanks for letting me be part of this and sharing the needs from the ground. You know, sometimes it's hard to understand, but this is a chance to share that story. Thank you. It's expected the province will announce a lifting of the 17-month-old mask mandate uh, for March 21st, the day that school would resume after the March break. He is uh, infectious disease specialist Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Thank you very much for uh, for coming on so quickly after we, uh, we chatted last time. Um, what's the initial... Reaction. I think we all felt that train coming a little bit. Um, are you surprised at all by the date? Are you surprised at the uh, at the urgency of this? Yeah, I mean, they, they kind of telegraphed. Sorry, let me stop. Hi, good morning. Good that's, that's all right. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, just sorry to get to your question. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they were telegraphing this from uh, a couple of weeks back. So I, I don't think it really comes as as a surprise. Um so, I mean, we, we, we sort of knew this was coming down the line. Uh, you know, they said they still left some uncertainty in their prior messaging saying, oh, they're going to look at the data. This is a potential idea. But, yeah, I think it's it's still not surprising that uh, that this is going to very likely happen. Let's see what the details are of the announcement. But it's probably pretty much no surprise that it's going to happen uh, after March break. And I, I think, you know, big picture, you know, you obviously you, you line up 100 people, you're going to get 100 mm-hmm. uh, different opinions. Some are going to be more strong or other than others. Some are going to be more polarizing than others. I like, let's just acknowledge that, you know, masks are helpful. They're not perfect. They're certainly an imperfect tool, but a helpful tool. And, you know, we can all look at the data and come to different conclusions. And we can also have adult conversations about this uh, and respectful conversations, if we, even if we disagree with other people's, uh, other people's thoughts and ideas about this. My take is, listen, we, our Omicron wave is subsiding. It's not over. I would, I would evaluate this week by week. And, you know, I certainly would lift mass mandates at some point. I just, I, I'd wait. I'd wait a couple more weeks and just reevaluate this. It's, it's, it's receding, but it's not over. So I see it as a little too soon, but again, I appreciate that others might disagree with me on that. Yeah, I think having the mature conversation where we know that everybody is trafficking in, in different levels of concern and, and different household environments, I'd make the point, there are things that you and I have talked about many times, the, the theatrics of wearing it into the movie theater, but taking it down for popcorn, wearing it into the gym and going between a treadmill and a machine and lifting it back up. But that's a different distinction from healthcare settings and, uh, and, and public transit where you would think that many people will wear it for that that's not necessarily hygiene theater it's creating a practical environment where you're wearing a mask for an entire ride on on a ttc bus or the subway or whatever that's a bit different than the theatrics of the gym the theater the walking to the bathroom and the restaurant etc etc yeah i I i completely agree right like listen let's not pretend that these policies are perfect they're far from it you can poke holes in any any policy and sometimes the holes are gaping right like especially with with you know restaurants uh, where or bars where you know you're eating and drinking without a mask and you slap a mask on to walk 10 feet for you know 20 seconds to go to the bathroom but you know 99 percent of the time your mask is off like let's not pretend that they're doing much in those settings but yeah as you point out you know healthcare settings uh, give me a break. These things are yeah. very helpful. Not perfect, but they're really helpful. I like your example, too, of public transportation, right? 
many people rely on public transportation. It's not a choice. Like you need to go use public transportation to get to work or to get your groceries or whatever. I, I, listen, listen, again, we can disagree on this. Many people might disagree with me on this, but I think it's pretty reasonable to, to maintain this on, on public transit. Again, just for now, doesn't mean it's forever until we see a sustained decline in cases and a sustained decline in, in hospitalization. And I think you'll have people grow in confidence as well. And and that matters. Like it, it, there's the practicality of the of the dodging and weaving to avoid the virus, as it were, which got a lot harder to do. And, and we obviously, I think, as a society, cast a lot less moral judgments and aspersions if you get COVID than if you got it 18, 19 months ago. And even then, that was incredibly unfair. There were people that had to work, had to be in high uh, traffic environments, yeah. had to work in warehouses, had to teach school, all that stuff. You know, like I think we're all... Mature people are kind of conscious of all that. That said, I, Dr. Bogosh, I believed in the Vax passports in August and September, and I think that got us places. It, 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 it raised vaccination rates. It made people more confident to be around vaccinated people. Similarly to where I didn't know where we went with the passports after Omicron, and, and, and given that we're at such a high, high vaccination rate, I'm almost like that with the mask to some extent. I think it's going to create more confidence on in public transit. But if you're going to a restaurant anyway, yeah, walk in without one, sit down and and uh, live life like it's 2019. I, I, I think that's where we're headed. Yeah, maybe. I mean, listen, I, I also appreciate there's uncertainty in the road that lies ahead. And, and again, like we, you know, not everyone has to agree with everyone mm-hmm. on everything. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I got a a lot of crap when I suggested that uh, I was in full agreement with the province moving forward on lifting uh, vaccine certificates and with um, with capacity limits lifting. You know, so, uh, this was mostly in private, but, you know, obviously some, some of my colleagues uh, disagree with me pretty vigorously on that. But, you know, like, obviously, like you, the, the policy has to match the, the, the current public health risk. And, you know, look, we're in such a better place right now than we were you know, one month and two months ago, you know, ICUs are decompressing, hospitals are decompressing, like things are getting a lot better. And I thought it was, I thought it was reasonable and sensible to start lifting those things. I totally agree with you. With masks, you know, I think benefits versus harms. Benefits, we know that they help a little bit. They're not perfect. Harms, listen, we can't ignore that they're uncomfortable and they're annoying Mm -hmm. to wear. I mean, I wear one hours and hours and hours a day. But yeah, they are uncomfortable and annoying to wear. And we also can't ignore that they do impede verbal and nonverbal communication. You know, some people overplay this, some people underplay it, but it, it happens. It, it does happen. My take, and again, fully appreciate that many people might disagree, is the benefits for where we're at right this minute in the province, the benefits still outweigh the quote unquote harms. I would evaluate this week by week. I just, I would leave it as status quo for now and reevaluate after March break, one week, two weeks after March break. Listen, if we have a sustained trajectory headed downward, fine, let them. If we don't, maybe reassess that. But again, I fully acknowledge that there's many of my colleagues and people listening that that disagree with me on this. And listen, they're probably going to lift this today. People can choose to wear a mask or not. And, and like anything else, we can have adult conversations, no shaming or stigma for people that choose to wear a mask. And, and again, if it's not the rule or the law, then there's no shaming or stigma for people who choose not to as well. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, our guest. Yeah, yeah, one more for you. I think the conversation about schools being, um, you know, spreaders of, of transmission has has basically evaporated. But I'm not going to call out people who were worried about it because in previous waves, guess what? Schools did open in, in terms of very heightened uh, times of spread in, like, let's say, March and April of last year, almost coming to a one-year anniversary where we moved March break. We were worried about kids coming back after Easter. A lot of people were right about what was going to transpire here. But but I, I think similarly, if schools had pushed hospitalizations up in the last six weeks, Dr. Bogosh, a lot of us logical reasonable database people would say we got a problem here but we haven't had one we'll watch masks really we'll watch them really carefully on this and i'll be the first to scream out we got to do something about this and maybe we undersold their um their effectiveness in in terms of limiting spread in schools but but i think we have to try things we have to we have to put left foot before right foot sometimes to see whether we can walk or not oh yeah no i i I completely agree with you and i think that the what's driving uh my hesitation is twofold. One is, 
you know, at a population level, sure. You know, listen, we, we're, we're obviously way better off now than we, we were weeks and weeks ago, mm-hmm. but we're actually stalling and we're not, we're not declining right now. We're very much plateauing in terms of hospitalization and cases, albeit we know that the cases are very imperfect given the limited sampling. So it's not entirely clear how we're doing in the province. Way better than a month and two months ago, but it's not entirely clear if we're truly having that continuing decline in cases. And then number two is not at a population level, but at an individual level, right? There are people, many among us, who are at greater risk for severe outcomes of infection. Um, and, and or For example, students that go to school who might go home to a mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or housemate who is at risk for a severe infection. That doesn't really show up at a population level. No. That just shows up as someone who gets sick and dies in hospital. And, uh, and, you know, it's it's tragic. And listen, obviously, we still have to acknowledge that, listen, COVID's not going anywhere. It's going to be here for a long, long, long time. And that there will be a time and place for mass mandates to be lifted. I fully agree with that. But, you know, mm-hmm. and again, these are value judgments based on data. We're all looking at the same data and we can have different value judgments and that's okay. My personal value judgment is there's just probably a bit too much COVID in Ontario right now to lift this. And I would just take it week by week, give it a couple of weeks after March break, see how things go. Hey, if things continue to decline, let's go. Let's do it. It's going to be time. You got like as you point out, you got to walk at some point. You got to put one foot in front of the other. In the same breath, I will all absolutely acknowledge that there are people that see the same data completely differently than me, and I respect that. As long as we're making informed decisions, we're doing something right. You know, what I don't like is when people take these ideologic stances without looking at the data, and and you yeah. know that bugs me. But obviously, you. You, you look at this, you understand it, you get it, and, and it's okay to have a different opinion on this. It's, it really is. That's why I love our conversations. The best analogy I've seen about COVID is, is 24 months into it. Um, the people that are arguing about it are like drunk people in the parking lot after an NFL game. Uh, and uh, and they're just, yeah. They're, <laughs> I love that analogy because there's just a lot of dissing and, and back and forth. Yeah. And, and you and me just want to get in our cars and say, that was a good game. It was interesting. Yeah, I learned exactly. something. I'm driving away now. I don't want any part of this. Exactly. Exactly. I'm with you all the way on that. Dr. Bogosh, thanks so much for the time. As always, we greatly appreciate it. Have a great day. You know, we were talking about vaccination rates a little bit earlier. We were talking with Dr. Bogosh. Again, I think there's been less um, yelling and screaming about almost everything except where there's been where there's been a lack of a booster campaign it's hard to find a lot to complain about but i think i look at the numbers and i do not see uh boosters where they need to be among um older people the number of fully vaccinated people with a third dose and this is just 12 plus in the city of toronto is only 48.30 percent and there's real um real gaps huge gaps with 60 plus 70 plus as well um, so I'm again, I'm all for the concept of uh, making these vaccines available that we still have. Joe Cressy's been brilliant. Board of Health. Um, we, the city of Toronto has done almost everything they can. I don't know what more they need to do except get the vaccines to the actual people, which was conversations. Those conversations we were having a year ago when uh, when vaccines were much, much harder to come by. And now they aren't. But get your message through to people uh, older than you and me that um, that two shots is not necessarily sufficient. And it hasn't been uh, for several months. That said, a lot of our uh, progress, our data, our numbers are really good. Very happy to welcome on uh, pharmacologist Sabina Vora Miller, whose latest uh, Twitter thread is a seven seven uh, tweet thread. I think it's the best way to describe it. Five reasons to get vaccinated 2022. You know, I say I'm good with numbers, Sabina, and now I'm getting confused between seven threads in a tweet and five reasons to get vaccinated. But I think I have it right. You're right. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the extra the extra tweets are actually for references, and that's always important to include because if anyone wants to take a look at the data, the links are right there for them to take them right to the studies and so they can read it for themselves. So I always include references in any anything that I actually tweet out. Are there still conversations that you find anecdotally you're having or friends of yours are having or colleagues of yours are having with older people who say, I did my two shots. I thought that was enough. And you're like, well, the game did kind of change a little bit last fall in a lot of some for some for better, some for worse. But in a lot of capacities, they're still hesitant on that third shot or they won't do it. 
Yeah, you know, and I think also a lot of people um, have had recent infections, right? And so either they're, they think that they're protected now that they have two doses and an, and an infection, which is, you know, uh, for sure absolutely true in that they do have immunity from that infection that was going to help them for the next few months. Um, and then you also have people who say, well, you know, I already took two doses. Why do I need to take a third? Um, you know, this, why, why am I requiring to take three doses? I wasn't told that this is going to be a three-dose series. But if you actually look at a lot of the vaccines that we've taken in the past, especially as children, they typically are multi-series doses. I mean, there are usually three, uh, in fact, for quite a few of them. So it's not unusual to have a three-dose series for a vaccine. Um, You know, I think that we just forget because we get most of our routine vaccinations in our childhood and we don't really remember, you know, in our adulthood Mm -hmm. what it looks like. But even in adulthood, if you're taking, you know, vaccines for, uh, for a variety of different things, there are at least two, if not three doses. Um, so I, I think that it, for a lot of people, it feels like it's a bait and switch because they thought they just were supposed to get two and now there's a third one that's cropped up. Um, but again, you are so right in calling out that especially those who are you know above age 60, if you've only had two doses and especially if you have not had an infection, it is so critical to go get vaccinated, get your booster dose um, in because that's going to really help protect you against these severe um, illness that you're seeing with, um, you know, especially with certain populations. Do you make that distinction between I hear from parents all the time who have maybe a, a university student and and exactly that, that, you know, obviously in close quarters, residents where they've been away at school, maybe they have recovered from from COVID, Omicron or Delta, doesn't matter. Um, but but they I, I know that immunity does wane. But the concept is, yeah, at, at a certain point, maybe over Christmas, they got it. So they're waiting on that third shot. I do understand that eventually as we're talking spring and summer like i have not boosted my teenage boys yet um but i but i I, i'm open-minded to the concept of doing it later in the summer we'll see where all this goes but i know that 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 was where people were really hesitant with mandates too for university classes and a lot of controversy in the states about saying wait a minute you want my healthy 20 year old recovered from covid to get a third shot and and they've got some acquired immunity or you won't let them back into class that that gets into sticky territory to me yeah, and you know, I've also been recommending those who have had an infection and had two doses, you know, my my personal recommendation there matches what Nazi says, that okay, you mm-hmm. are going to have some protection, so it's it's better to actually push out your booster so that you have protection for longer, right? Um, and so... Absolutely. And I, I think you and I have had that discussion on mandates, you know, I think last week, but mm-hmm. you have to, mandates have to be based on a purpose. What is the purpose that drives it? Um, right. And so if you're looking at um, a vaccine mandate for university students, is it to drive uptake of vaccine? Is it to prevent transmission? What, like, you know, is it to prevent severe illness? What is it, right? And, and in this population, you know that the risk of severe illness is low. You know that they already have immunity um, from the two doses as well as an acquired infection. And so what really is the purpose of having this mandate? So I think you need to go back and, and think about that. I do think that eventually this is going to be a three-dose series, and that's going to really help with long-term protection um, against, you know, even um, current variants, but hopefully even against new variants, fingers crossed on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that we are going to see that this is going to be a three-dose series for everyone. So eventually everyone should be getting a third dose. And the question is about those who are at low risk for severe illness and you already had an infection, do you push out your booster dose so that you have, um, you can stretch out your, your, um, your immunity? And I think that might be a better course of action. We're also seeing that, you know, when you are spacing out to doses, you're, you're getting more robust immunity. And that really just goes back to the basic principles of how you vaccinate. Um, and so pushing out this booster, if you've had an infection, is only going to help prolong your immunity. Sabina Vora-Miller, kind enough to join us, a pharmacologist on Toronto Today. A lot of people heard our conversation last week, and, I, and I, the most the considerable uh, you know, credit uh, that I take and, and pleasure I take in hearing is they're like, well, I see both sides. You, you mentioned living with um, an, an older parent with a younger unvaccinated child, and they see your perspective. They hear my perspective saying, sounds like you know, a, a household w- without you know, a, a, an older parent and, and without anybody with comorbidities and 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 two dose kids and and you know greg wants his kid to be able to have a a grad ceremony three months from now a lot of this nuance we just had a great caller on who documented how his 13 year old girl um is really fighting a bad case of covid right now 
and and he thinks that she got it potentially from playing basketball, but she's a champ. She's a warrior. And it's God, like I think the balance and the nuance of all this, um, it's exhausted us all. And we're all trying to look out for each other and, and have different perspectives on this. But it's it's leading to just a lot of just a lot of mixed emotions. People said to me yesterday, well, you must be thrilled that the mass will come off. And I said, I'm just I'm just so indifferent and mixed about it. I feel it's great for me. But I'm worried about my 77-year-old mom being stressed out walking into Canadian Tire and seeing a bunch of unmasked adults around her because she hasn't done it in 17 months. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it also goes back to our conversation that we had about basing these things not on arbitrary dates. I mean, what March 21st, what's happening on March 21st? Did I miss a calendar invite to something? You know, um, I think it needs to be based on metrics. And if you look at the way the U.S. is doing it, CDC has very clear guidelines. You know, it depends on um, your community, whether mm-hmm. you're in the low, medium or high risk. And that's based on number of cases. It's based on hospital capacity as well. And based on some of these parameters, they, they actually have these cutoffs in terms of, all right, if you're if you're a high risk um, in a high uh, level uh, of spread, then you should still be masking, right? And if you actually uh, put these metrics into what we're seeing here in Ontario, we don't qualify. We don't qualify because we're having, you know, they're saying 10x what the cases are right now because we're not really testing. So if you're looking at 15,000 cases a day, as it is, we, you know, our caseload is really high. If you're looking at hospital capacity, I think, first of all, it's you know, important to remember that we have a really low hospital capacity in Canada, and Ontario is, is no different. In fact, we have one of the lowest in the OECD countries, right? And so, yes, our hospitalization numbers are decreasing, but we're still pretty much, we're always pretty much close to max. I mean, every flu season, we're at 110%, right? Hallway medicine has been a thing here for a very long time. So if you're actually looking at the same metrics that the U.S. is using to drop masks, we're in, we wouldn't qualify here in Ontario. And so I think for me, it really goes back to the fact that we should be basing this on um, metrics. And we should say, all right, when we come down to X number of cases, when we have Y hospital capacity, when we have Z um, vaccine uptake, that's when we need to be considering this. Especially because masking is something that's easy to implement, relatively more cost effective than other measures, and it's really impactful in preventing transmission. I mean, it can prevent the need for requiring more stringent lockdowns. I'm just concerned about what if there's a new variant that you're seeing across you know, the globe and other, in other countries, and we're seeing a higher number of BA2 take hold here as well. I don't want to go to a point where we have to consider another lockdown. I'm done with lockdowns, right? Yeah. Yeah, everyone is. Everyone's done with masking. Everyone's done with lockdowns. So what can we do to actually try and bring capacity up without, you know, no lockdowns, bring capacity up restaurants, retailers, etc. And do it safely. Masking allows us to do that. Do you think there are things are there things open that you wish were closed right now? Um, are there things open that I wish like 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 a, like a, when there's a Maple yeah. Leafs game with a full crowd or a full restaurant? I, how does that make you? What's your perception on on that? Yeah, you know, I think that maybe some of the big games um, when it's at full capacity that can get a little stressful because one one case can end up causing a lot of cases. I think restaurants, you know, um, retail, personal services, things like that, they're they're lower in terms of you know an outbreak is not going to cause as many. Um, as many cases, right? And in that situation, mm. restaurants full capacity, I think we should be doing this right now. Um, I don't think that, you know, we should be holding back games, perhaps, if you, you're having a stadium with 20,000 people, everyone screaming, yelling, ventilation is poor. Um, that can be a bit of a concern. But otherwise, I want to see more things opening up, not closing right now. Um, and I just feel that masking is a way that we can actually allow these things to open up and we don't have to consider closing it if we have that stopgap in place to prevent transmission. Um, you know, and then the other thing also is that, especially in schools, I mean, there, the uptake of vaccines in 5 to 11 is really, really poor. And you know, kids under five are not vaccinated. And I just feel we're not listening to the child health experts. I mean, they told us, the Ontario Science Table told us last year, here is a way to make schools safe. You know, invest in ventilation, invest in cohorting. We did not do it. You know, the, um, the Children's Health Coalition said, keep schools open. We did not do that. You know, health experts said, said keep outdoor playgrounds open. We didn't do that. Yeah. And thankfully, that was reversed, you know. but And they're saying now that keep masks on for, for 
children in school, at least for the next, you know, I'm not saying we need to do it permanently. I think what we need to see is cases coming down and we need to see hospital capacity improving. Um, And I don't know if March 21st is that date. Maybe it's, you know, April 1st. I don't know. Um, it just has to be based on metrics and not on an arbitrary date. Yeah, I know. I know you. You know who Joseph Allen is, and I look and I go, well, you know, th- that's a guy. Hey, listen, you, me, Joseph Allen, Isaac Bogus. None of us make everybody happy. That's not what we're going for. All we can do is look at numbers, be pragmatic, and and see where it goes. But he has a great quote. There's going to be a fundamental rebalancing in terms of how we think about indoor spaces. I think people won't tolerate sick buildings. That era is over. Rightly so. In good riddance. And he says that and he should, but we've got to turn that into action. And you're right with a lot we've done with education. We haven't moved quickly enough. We haven't moved stealth enough in the last 24 months, knowing once we started to realize what this was and how to risk mitigate. And a lot of us think we're we're a lot more knowledgeable than we were 18 months ago. We just haven't done that. We have to make indoor spaces safer and that will avoid so much of what we went through through most of 2020 before vaccinations. That's exactly it, right? And now that we know that COVID is an airborne disease, right? And that becomes even more important. I mean, things like distancing, they don't make sense anymore. They don't make right? sense. You're right. They don't make sense. So, like, why are we still doing this? Why are we still doing hygiene theater with everything being sanitized to the nth degree? Let's drop all of these things that we know do not actually have an impact. And let's instead put that energy, those resources into things that we know make sense, right? Um, and so, I, absolutely, I agree that we need to be making these investments. And I think indoor spaces, you're right. I think, you know, I completely agree with that. We're going to be rethinking any place that has poor ventilation. And it's not just for COVID, but in general, in general, having clean, good air to breathe in is something that we're going to see as advantageous, regardless of whether we have COVID or not. Yeah, you nailed it. Well, let's keep the conversation going. It's been a pleasure today. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Sabina Vore Miller, pharmacologist. Look, again, it's I, I read this piece yesterday on The New York Times. I'm going to bring it up. Uh, it, it, you know, here's the headline. It's, quote, alarming. Children are severely behind in reading. And some of that is documented from schools being closed. Some of it is masks. Some of it is. OK, so I, I'm going to say that you need at a certain age to see lips forming, words moving. And I was so upset reading the piece. I counted to 10 before I tweeted about it. I counted to 20 before I sent it to anybody else. But we know that there's just been extraordinary losses in literacy. So alarming? No, that's not the use I've word. Predictable, uh, documented, uh, easily foreseen. And I think I'll use the P word here. I think a lot of privilege, a lot of economic privilege, a lot of social privilege, a lot of people who are well-meaning, just they were... I don't know how they could have been so blinded as to how bad this would be. And a lot of smart people made the point. Kids are going to be okay and they're resilient and online. We've got all this technology, even with school closures. The idea your kid, your six-year-old will be okay, who's struggling to read right now, would be okay if not, or we'd all just get through it. Outrageous. And the, the irony is, a couple of people pointed this out. If you can afford a New York Times subscription to read this story, your kids are probably okay. If you can't, they ain't. Okay? They ain't. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show tomorrow on Thursday. A lot of reaction to what the province says and deems is about to happen uh, just over a week from now after March break with the lifting of the mask mandates on everybody's mind. Everybody has an opinion on it. And A lot of those opinions don't square up with each other's. So that's what we're here for, uh, to try and uh, cut through a lot of that. Live show tomorrow, and uh, you can catch us on the Radio Player Canada app or on 640toronto.com, if not, on your AM dial. Thanks again for listening today.